So I have my word of greeting to those you've already heard. In the glorious name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, very happy to worship the living God through his son Jesus with you this, this morning. Uh, while you're turning to Matthew chapter 19, I, I've just, it's amazing, I'm flooded with memories, um, even though I don't get to worship here this, that often, I um, have appreciated so much hearing the children. I think they're two wonderful sounds in a church. One is the sound of pages turning, and one is the sound of the presence of children. I, I can't imagine Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost or Stephen standing up for his last sermon, longest sermon in the book of Acts, by the way, in Acts 7, or Paul standing up in Acts 13 or in chapter 20 when Eutychus fell from the third balcony and saying, now the children can be dismissed to their classes. It just didn't happen in the early church. And uh, I think it's the only place in the Bible that tells us that the Lord sings over us. Isn't that amazing? One day we might hear that. We know we're going to sing to him. Can you imagine if we hear him singing to us? What a stupefying thought. And what a prospect to uh, look forward to. I was actually here uh, for your opening service, March 1st, 2020. And I, uh, I don't know why I was here, <laughs> but I was. And, um, and on that day, I heard Ken and Vaughn preach the longest sermon I've ever heard him preach. And the reason I remember it is because it was my daughter's birthday. That's one reason I remember the date. And we had a reservation for brunch. And so I, I wouldn't have even noticed how long he preached if it weren't for that fact. I was wondering, I think it, we're going to lose that, that reservation. But I, uh, I let that slip in front of Pastor Josh uh, sometimes later, and he rebuked me very, very respectfully as a young man to an older man. Let's just call it a gentle reproof. And he said, he said uh, we, we want long sermons in our church, and I hope you'll remember that 45 minutes from now, and I don't know if you remember, one, three, four, this is, this is the true passing of generations. 70 years ago, R.G. Lee was in the top three most famous people in this neighborhood. He was, he was the pastor of, of uh, Bellevue Baptist Church, and uh, Adrian Rogers was his second successor. And Adrian said, I don't want to, I have, I do not hope to fill Dr. Lee's shoes. I do pray that I can stand on his shoulders. I think, wow, what a, what a thought. Anyway, I say that to say this. He had a favorite saying, sermonettes for Christianettes. So you remember that when you think about the commitment of your, your pastors for, uh, to, expository preaching, which does not amount to a series of, of sound bites, okay? I'm really not going to preach that long, so don't, don't worry. Um, the last time I was here, I heard Sam Kreitz preach, and um, I was thinking about that today when I realized I would come back down here. God always gives us something to celebrate, always. 
he sometimes allows us something to lament. Luther wouldn't say sometimes. He would say always. As a matter of fact, Luther said, God always gives a man a reason to cry out to him. Think about that. And sometimes God allows the two uh, precipitating events, the cause for celebration, the cause for lament, to emerge in the same place at the same time, simultaneously. I was thinking about that as I was thinking about Sam this morning, because uh, Sam is a graduate of Texas A&M, and their football team is awful. I mean, it's awful. I mean, it's horrible. I was in College Station a few weeks ago for their inaugural service, and of course, they're obsessed with the Texas A&M football team there. But Sam is from Houston, and last night, his baseball team won the World Series. So he's got something to celebrate. He's got something to lament. And uh, so, will, so will we most of the time. Now, I'm going to read from what I believe, and I have no right to have an opinion. I'm not a scholar. I'm just a student like you are. What I believe is the most misunderstood passage in the Gospels. I think it's the most misunderstood thing that, that Jesus says. By the way, through some inexplicable mix-up, I uh, thanked Kenan for the fact that he makes people like me preach through a book like Judges. Because if I'm given free reign, and if I'm told what Josh told me yesterday, preaching anything you want to, I make a beeline for the Gospels. One is because I'm lazy. And the other is because the treasure is odd. And, you know, if Kenan says, um, you're going to preach on Judges, he, he tosses us a shovel and he says, start digging. Because the treasure's there. It really is there. Two weeks ago, I couldn't have told you where the Song of Deborah is in the Bible. I, I couldn't have told you what it was about, but I had to become an expert really fast. And there's a lot of treasure in Judges 5, let me tell you, but it's not obvious. Well, everything Jesus Christ said was theologically profound, spiritually sensitive, and psychologically penetrating, almost everything. And it's obvious the treasure's just heaped up on the ground. But there are some places where he's easily misunderstood. And this is one of those places. I'll tell you one more thing before we read the text. Um, because we're going to begin in verse 16 and go to verse 26. This is the story of the rich young ruler. And I once heard a, a, a wonderful theologian. He had been a professor of Greek exegesis, and he became a professor of theology. And that's the best route. That's the route that the great Warfield went. At Princeton, that's the great route. That's the route that the great Wayne Grudem went. You first become a New Testament scholar, then you become a theologian, systematic theologian. And I'm not going to say this man's name because if I tell you his name, you'll think, well, obviously he has to be right and you have to be wrong. But what he said was that these were the most mysterious words that Jesus, most baffling words that Jesus ever spoke. And then he said that he knew a seminary professor who confessed that when he got to the passage on the rich young ruler, that he walked faster, like he was walking through a graveyard, that he wanted just to get by it, and when I, to get past it, to, to leave it behind. And when I heard that, I thought, from both these great men, a great man quoting another great man, I thought, that can't be right. That can't be right. And it's not right. Now, what we're going to try to do is we're going to, we're going to try to understand the difference 
between checking the boxes and believing the gospel. Because the gospel is the most important thing. You know, the, the day that you uh, get accepted into the school you want to get accepted into, or the day you graduate from that school, the gospel is the most important thing. The day you fall in love, the gospel is the most important thing. The, the day you find out that your beloved loves you and, and you can become a mother or, or a father, the gospel is the most important thing. It's the most important thing, but you're not thinking about it on those days. You're, th you're thinking about getting into school, or you're thinking about falling in love, or you're thinking about becoming a, a mom or a dad. But on those days, it's the most important thing. Let me tell you, let me name some people right now. You don't know, you would hardly know any of them. You might know Margie Andrews, that's one. There are actually seven. Margie Andrews, Martha Cousins, Doug Enoch, famous architect, Jack Edmonds, um, Danny Lay, Bob Norris, uh, there's seven names. I've done seven funerals in three weeks in three states. Coyle Shea was the last one. I didn't name Coyle. One of the most famous medical families in Memphis. Let me tell you something. On the day that... Uh, the great inevitability comes to you like it came to coil on October 28th, on that day, the gospel will be the only thing. And it will be the only thing forever. It will be the only thing from then on. And then we will know how important it is when it becomes the only thing. So it's so important to get it right. And let me tell you something. This passage, this woefully misunderstood passage is one of the most helpful passages. Let's try to, uh, let me try to make good on it. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16. In honor of God, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 19, 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life, that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth, what do I still lack? What else I got to do? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be complete, go sell what you have and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished. And they asked him, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked out at them and said to them, 
With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You may be seated. Our great God and our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing the words that Jesus spoke in the setting that he spoke it. We thank you that these words were inspired by the Holy Spirit to an, a writing author. We think of these words have been preserved to us by bloody, martyred hands, that we have this liberty. We pray that we should always have this liberty in this land because we see dangerous encroachments. We know that there are those who are committed to obscuring these truths and removing these liberties. Oh, God, be merciful. We don't ask you for what the United States of America deserves. We ask you for your mercy on this land. Grant mercy, Lord. And Father, may these words have their way with us that we might know the reason why we heard these words this morning. And we pray that in all things the Lord Christ might know the recompense of his wounds, for we ask it in his lovely name, who is Jesus our Lord. Amen. I wonder if you noticed that there was one thing that I read which would have stupefied first century Jews that would have thought, how can that be true? And I wonder if you noticed that there was something Jesus said that would confuse 21st century evangelicals. Well, golly, how, how, how could that really be true? I'll talk about those verses when we get to them. So someone comes to him. We're really grateful for Mark. Uh, you know, Mark is the most neglected of the gospel writers, but Mark sometimes supplies something that the other three don't, don't tell us about. Uh, Mark gives us the greatest, most succinct definition of discipleship in 314. Uh, he gives us the nicknames of uh, James and John, Mary of Bethany, when he said she did what she could. What a perspective. What, what a commitment. Only Mark gives us that. And Mark tells us that the young man knelt. He fell down at Jesus' feet and, and he knelt. And he asked this question, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus, somewhat mysteriously, say, why are you calling me good? Because he said, good teacher, good rabbi. What good thing? You're a good teacher, so tell me what good thing I got to do if I'm going to go to heaven. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now, why did Jesus say that? What's he getting at? He's getting at who can answer such a question? Who can establish the, the terms which will lead to eternal life. Only God can do that. So what Jesus is saying is, okay, you need to clarify who you're appealing to, who you're applying to. So let, let's get that set. Is, you know, there were some liberal scholars at the turn of the 20th century who use this as an example of Jesus repudiating the idea of his own deity. Completely false. Completely false. But he wants us to clarify who he is before he answers the question. And then he's to life, keep the commandments. Now, there are basically two views, okay? One is a view that we call works righteousness. 
in the first century. We see it in um, the Judaizers. On the current scene, I don't want to lambast other communions because there are true believers in those communions, even though they may be mistaken on some pretty important things. But let's face it. If we encounter a knowledgeable professing believer in a different communion, say somebody who believes that baptism is necessary or celebrating mass is necessary or receiving the Eucharist from the hands of the priest is necessary and we're pleading grace, 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 grace. I mean, wouldn't they go here? Wouldn't they? You don't think they have their verses? You don't think this is one of their verses? And, and don't we know that uh, this is not the answer we would give to somebody? We'd go straight to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We'd say, by grace you have been saved through faith. we go to Romans 4, 5. It's not one who works, but one who bore 25, justification by faith. Titus 3, 5. Acts 16, 31. All the faith and grace passages, we'd go straight there. Jesus doesn't do it. And if this is all we had, and if we rip it out of its context, and if we don't keep reading, then we would have to say, well, you guys who preach salvation by works, you're right, we're wrong. But a text without a context is a pretext. And we've got to keep reading. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. Somebody comes to Jesus and say, I, I want to be saved by doing what I got to do. I, I, I want to be sure that I have a, um, a transactional relationship with God so that if I do these things for God, he's got to give me eternal life. So instead of doing what we would do and jumping to all the grace verses, Jesus said, you want to go down that road? I'll walk down that road with you. Let's see where it leads. So he says, well, if you want that, one thing you could do is uh, you could keep the commandments. And the young man says in verse 18, which ones? In other words, I, I don't want to do anything I don't have to do. I don't want to give up anything that I can hold on to. Just get out of hell and, and get me into heaven and I'll be fine. Just tell me what the bare minimum is. Which ones? Jesus plays along. He says, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me see, that's one, two, three, four, five, six. Now, I think many of you will know this, but Bible students talk about the two tables, the two tablets of the law. And what we mean when we say that is that the first table gives us our responsibilities in the vertical plane, that is, our responsibilities to God. The second table um, gives us our responsibilities in the horizontal plane. That is our responsibility to others, to our neighbors. Now, here's the thing we've got to notice here. It's one of the first things we can't miss. Every command that Jesus names, five, he, he command he names is from the second table. And then 
he quotes the summary of the second table, Leviticus 19.18. And that's not a part of the Ten Commandments, but it summarizes the Ten Commandments. Just like Deuteronomy 6 summarizes the first table. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the summary of the first table. The summary of the second table is Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he gives five commands from the second table, then he gives the summary of the second table. And then, astonishingly, 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 the most self-deceived character in the New Testament says, I've already done all that. As a matter of fact, I've done all that since I was a child. The law of God is child's play. I've kept all the commandments. Now, uh, you know what? They're not just 10 commandments. There are 613 commandments. All the commandments since he was a child. Now, there are a couple of things you got to understand. He not only broke one of the commandments, he not only broke one of the Ten Commandments, but he broke one of the commandments that Jesus cited in his answer. Did you notice that? He broke the Ninth Commandment, which says, you shall not bear false witness. He just bore false witness to God. It, it's, it's an amazing thing that, that, that's happening here. And he said, hey, what else you got? That was pretty easy. That's child's play. What else you got? Anything else you got to do? So, so the Lord says, well, if you want to be complete, if you, when you see that word, that teleos or telos, that we translate perfect, it doesn't mean exactly what we mean by perfection. It means more or less completion. If you want to be complete, in every way, you can just um, you can just sell your possessions and um, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come back here and follow me. Now, uh, I got a little cash in here, credit cards in here. What's your name? What's your name? Maxim. Ah. Paruski? Yes. Srasvita. Minyazavu Rani. Ochen Priyadna. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard it all. Pajasta, Maxine. Okay. Now, it's just an illustration, Maxine. Okay. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Uh, if Maxime, no, if I claimed to have kept the commandment to love my neighbor as myself, then it doesn't matter who owns my property. It's a matter of total... If I love Maxime as much as I love myself, it's a matter of total indifference to me whether Maxime owns my assets or whether I own my assets, my assets because I love Maxime as much as I love myself. 
It's just an illustration box. <laughs> All right, so, so here's the thing. Um, what Jesus is saying to this young man, oh, well, if you kept the command in Leviticus 19.18, if you love your neighbor as yourself, then it's a complete matter of indifference to you who owns your assets. So why don't you just give the proceeds from your assets to your neighbor and you come and follow me? Well, of course, he couldn't do that. Why couldn't he do it? Well, because he loved himself a lot more than he loved his neighbors, and he wanted to hold on to his money. Now, I, let me say this right now. This was, not a, this was not a great requirement. It was a great offer. Let me tell you, if Jesus had said, go give all your possessions to the poor, see you later, that would have been a great requirement. But that's not what he said. He said, give away everything and come and follow me. You know what that meant? It meant, I'll take care of your expenses. I'll take care of your bills. In uh, 1987, there was an economic meltdown in America. And I walked into my German bank on the next morning, and my banker, Frau Buchel, said to me, uh, Herr Stevens, uh, how did the stock market crash affect you? I said, Frau Buchel, you remember that 1965 Bob Dylan song, Like a Rolling Stone? She said, yes, I do. I said, you remember that line that says, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose? She said, yes, I do. I said, that's how the crash affected me, Frau Buchel. <laughs> she said, oh, I see. She should have known that. She was my banker. So, <laughs> well, in 2008, I was in a slightly different... <laughs> I can remember my war... Uh, uh, 2008, there was another meltdown. I can remember my poor financial advisor. God, what a tough job to be my financial advisor. He's sort of like being Richard Dawkins' chaplain. And I remember he looked at me and he said... You lost. And a couple of months later, Christmas, uh, I was sitting next to a rich lady. And I was thinking, if I only knew something about money, which I don't, if I only knew how to take care of money, this wouldn't happen. And in a moment of candor, I don't know why she told me this. They owned a Learjet, by the way. Um, she looked at me and said, we lost 40%. And I was, I was sorry, but it did make me feel a little better, you know, that even these people who know how to protect their assets. Well, here's the question, friend. Who do you want to protect your assets? Who do you want to take care of your bills? You want to do it or you want Jesus to do it? Are you sure you can protect them? My father once owned 30 cars and an airplane. He once owned four houses. When he died, he didn't own a house. He was living with my sister. I paid his last airplane bill. I didn't do it with cash. I did it with frequent flyer points. I paid his last car bill because he couldn't afford to pay. Who do you want to protect your assets? You want to protect safe. There was a chairman of a billionaire company in the 70s. He used to own Tiffany's, the jewelry store in Manhattan. He was a great Christian, and he had an assistant named Fred Smith, not the Memphis Fred Smith, the Dallas Fred Smith, who during a, a downturn, it looked like Maxie Jarman was going to lose everything. And he said, Mr. Jarman, at a time like this, do you ever think about all that money you gave away? He said, yeah, I do. 
He said, what do you think? He said, what I think is, I only lost what I kept. I only lost what I kept. So he can't do it. So, what's the thing that shocks us as evangelicals in the 21st century? Well, it's shocking when the Lord says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now something happens that um, would shock first century Jews. Verse 23, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, a camel, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now you see, first century Jews thought that riches were a reward for piety. So what Jesus said just set that notion on its head. They thought, what? And you can extract some verses from Proverbs and a couple other places and try to make that work, but it doesn't work. The Old Testament doesn't teach that either. But again, if you take verses out of context, you can prove almost anything to the Lord in the wilderness. Jerking verses out of context. And so when Jesus um, says this, now again, this is, this is what we miss, okay? The first thing we miss is he only quotes verses from the second table, and then he gives the summary of the second table, Leviticus 19.18. Then we miss this. Hold on to this. So his disciples were greatly astonished. Why? Because they had a first century Jewish worldview of riches and salvation. So they were shocked. But listen to the question they asked. They do not ask the question, then how then can a rich man be saved? You see, that's critical. They ask the question, how then can anybody be saved? And look at his answer. There's something, uh, John Newton, who also believed this, said we should take it like salt at the table. Never the main course, but always there. And it's something we call Reformed theology. And what does Reformed theology say? It says that salvation is all of grace. It says there's no way we can advance our case toward God by any good thing we do, anything we give up. I worked for a quarter century with students who were um, brainwashed into thinking only superstitious people and old women believe in God. And so I, I would just spend so much time with these university students and they'd ask me all these questions and really 90% of the questions they would ask me would be the same three or four questions. And one of those questions, well, if Christianity is true, why are there so many religions? I love that question because it's a very easy question. There are only two religions. They're true religion and false religion. False religion takes thousands of names. True religion takes one name. There are two theological systems. There's works righteousness, that is, that's the name of false religion, by the way. I'm made right with God by something I do for God, something I bring to God, something I give up for God. Thousands of religions subscribe to works righteousness. It's really generically, it's one religion, though it takes thousands of names. True religion says, no, we can only be right with God by something He gives up for us. A sacrifice He makes for us. 
an offering to religion called Christianity. And so you can take a verse out of context and say, oh, you see there, Jesus is saying you've got to keep the commandments to be saved. No, Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is humoring a fool. And he's showing him that not only has he not kept all the commandments, he can't even keep one of the commandments. He can't even keep one of the Ten Commandments. He can't even keep one of the commandments that Jesus quotes in front of them. And he can't keep from lying about his own righteousness. Then Jesus says, a person could just as easily be saved as a camel could get through the eye of a needle. Is that possible? No, it's not. But then he says, but with God, all things are possible. So what's he, what's he saying? He's saying nobody can save themselves, but God can save you. And what is that, friends? That is the vindication of Reformed theology. Now, if you don't know what that is, it doesn't matter. Your pastors will take years to teach you what it means. The labels aren't important right now. The only thing that's important is to understand we can't save ourselves. We can't get to heaven through our own righteousness. Let me tell you something. If we could contribute 1%, Christ would not have had to die. Because death is a 100% contribution, isn't it? So we cast ourselves upon this blessed Jesus who is our only hope in, in, in life and death because with men, with ourselves, salvation is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so God offers us His grace. You know, that's, in a, in a way, Timothy Keller has taught us a lot about this, but um, in a way, it's an insult. It insults our flesh. What is our flesh? That's that part of our nature that's unrenewed. That's that part of us that we get from the first Adam through our parents. That's the worst part of us. And that gospel of free grace insults and offends the worst part of us. Because the worst part of us said, the best I can do cannot even force God to tolerate my presence for even one minute. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. And to our flesh, that's an insult. But here's the amazing thing. Timothy Keller says, yes, the gospel presents us with a kind of insult with, while at the same time presenting us with the greatest compliment. So you're saying that I can only be made tolerable to God by the ransom price paid by the death of an infinitely perfect, infinitely loved person. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. But you know what, friend? Here's, here's the compliment. The ransom was paid. It was paid. Why? Because of inscrutable, inexplicable, reasonless love 
Now, here's why it's so important to get it to right. I'm embarrassed to confess this to you, but I'm going to confess it, and then I'm going to leave, and I wish I'd stay with you. I'm supposed to be at a baptism, and we're going to take communion in the place I'm going, so I would love to stay here and take table fellowship with you. I can't. Um, I was an ordained quarter century before I figured out when I got saved. I was in my late 40s. I had been a pastor in Memphis for about five years before I understood when I got saved. And the reason is because I thought that I got saved as a child, but I came back to the Lord at age 20. And that was my testimony, that I wandered in my teen years, and I finally came back to the Lord at age 20. And I would even say, I'd say, now, if you had known me during those teen years, there's no way you would have believed I was a Christian but I was, and I remember the experience from the inside, and I know that I was, but I wasn't. <laughs> well, how did I figure out I wasn't? Well, because the memories became more acute, and I always check the box. This kid is trying to check. He wants to make sure he's got all the boxes checked because so it's safe. So it's going to be safe for him when he dies, and he was checking the boxes, well, I mean, I checked the box. I believed. I, I signed off on all, all the data uh, of gospel claims. I believed that Jesus was the Son of God. I, believed, I was baptized as a child, April 1959. And there was never a time when I didn't believe. Now, I didn't like the stuff that Paul said. I thought he was a little off, and I certainly didn't believe everything I read in Genesis, but I was pretty squared away on, uh, on Jesus' death and Jesus' identity. But you know what? Is I remembered things. I realized that during those years, there was no restraint before sin. And there was no regret after sin. And there was no resolve against future sin. Never. And it's impossible to live like that if you have a renewed nature. Now, we're not saved by our resistance to sinning. We're, we're saved by the fact that someone died because we can't resist sin. That has nothing to do with our salvation. But these works, these evidences, are a result of salvation. They're not the reason for the result of. And we confess to the Lord that we can't control our sin. We can't keep from sinning. We can't make our own atonement. And we even though I checked the boxes. Here's the beautiful thing. I had some people say, oh, you're wrong. You know, sometimes we become a Christian or we, we come back to the Lord and we learn so many new things and things are so different that we think we weren't saved in the first place. You were saved. And I thought, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And then God did something wonderful. When my mom died in 2014, my wife found a letter when we were cleaning out her condo. And it was a letter that I wrote as a first semester college student to my dad telling him why I could not go into the family business. I was 17 years old. And the reason I gave was because I was going to be a minister. And you think, oh, then you were saved. On the contrary. On the contrary. That letter was so painful. I still haven't read all of it. I couldn't. It was too painful. 
It was all about me. It was nothing about Jesus. And it was overwhelmingly clear that the 17-year-old who wrote that letter was lost. Well, hallelujah. To clear that up, that young man thought he was right with God when he came to Jesus. He had a little sliver of conscience, of, uh, conscience left. Mark also tells us, I think it was Mark, that Jesus loved him. That Jesus loved him. That makes me hope. That maybe, or maybe he was present in Acts 2, Peter's sermon. On the day of Pentecost. Maybe he was even one of the 500 that Jesus appeared to at one time. Maybe one day he got it. And maybe one day we'll see him. I hope you get it. And I hope that one day, and it won't be long for me, I hope it's really, really long for you. One day I'll see you. Amen.